You're listening to Fueling the Future of Transport, hosted by Tammy Klein, the founder and CEO of Transport Energy Strategies. We'll talk all about the fuels and energy it takes to keep the world moving forward. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show today. I am so pleased to have with me Apoor Bhargava. He is the CEO and founder of WeaveGrid, and we are going to talk grid integration for electric vehicles, for utilities, for consumers, what the company is doing. Um, I'm super excited to get into this topic and for you all to learn more about this company. Apoor, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Tammy. It's a real pleasure. Appreciate being here. It is my pleasure as well. So I kind of gave some teasers, uh, but for the listeners who may not be familiar, can you talk about what WeFrid does and how you guys came to co-found uh, the company? Um, you know, like what gap were you seeing out there in the EV space in particular that wasn't being addressed and, and how you're working with those three areas that I talked about just a few minutes ago, utilities, OEMs, and consumers? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Happy to happy to dive into it. You know, like I, I think for my co-founder and I, we we had come from the two sectors that are sort of at the middle of this, this sort of maelstrom that is happening right now. I had worked mostly most of my career prior to graduate school in the utilities and energy sector. And John, my co-founder, had worked primarily in the automotive sector. And we both had an understanding of the other one too, but I think we primarily kind of cut our teeth in those sectors. I think what we both shared was a passion for driving decarbonization across the industry and across the economy. And we knew that we wanted to be working closely with these industries. Um, electrification kind of provided that perfect moment. And I think in 20, late 2017, early 2018, when we started like devising this company, what was sort of apparent was that you know EVs were starting to come. There were the mm-hmm. early models. You had especially Tesla and Nissan really kind of taking pole position. I used to drive a GM Volt, a Chevy Volt. So you had those vehicles too coming along. Really great, great products there. But it was still the early days. And I think we hadn't seen a lot of those announcements from every major automaker. You were seeing signs in China and Europe for sure. But at least here in the United States, I think the the, the fundamental question was, you know, how quickly are we going to transition and are we going to transition to an all-electric future? And of course, there's many different fuel choices and many different options you can have. But but what very quickly since we started the company has become, I think, much more obvious is that light-duty vehicles are headed down the electrification pathway. Mm-hmm. So when we were getting started, I think the, the sort of premise was, look, how do we how do we build a system? How do we ensure that 280 million cars, 280 million light-duty vehicles that exist on the roads today in the United States, how can you imagine a world where all of those go electric? Given the constraints and realities of the electric utility industry and the Mm -hmm. electric grid, which to just put this in context, right? Each of these industries has been operating for just about the same amount of time. About 120 years mm-hmm. is the length of the automotive industry's history and also the utility, electric utility industry's history. And so with those two sort of parallel journeys, you've got this macro trend of decarbonization pushing mm-hmm. each of them, mm-hmm. one from centralized fossil fuels to much more renewable centric and clean energy centric, the other one from ICE, internal combustion engines, to EVs. And simultaneously, as you've got decarbonization happening you know, at the, at the physical systems level, each of these systems 
is rapidly kind of running into one another because now you have these 280 million vehicles that are going to depend on the electric grid for the fuel that they need and vice versa. In order to keep that electric grid reliable, you also are going to need those 280 million batteries on wheels to provide some sort of value or at least some sort of cost avoidance to the electric grid that they are going to be pulling power from. And that's a lot. That's a huge transformation. (laughs) And really what we kept asking ourselves was, are these two sectors ready to have that interaction, to have that handshake? And we realized that the physical sectors will come together at the pace that they will come together at. But there's actually an opportunity to take advantage of the huge mega trend underlying both of them as well, which is digitization. And that there was a way that we could actually leverage the digital technologies underlying every vehicle increasingly, and also every utilities IT and OT systems, where we could bring together the digital spheres to help accelerate that physical sort of transformation that's happening. And that's really been the premise. And so it's been, how do we accelerate decarbonization at the intersection of these two industries, taking advantage of all the digital technologies that each of these each of these industries has been investing in too. So what's been the market reaction, um, shall we say, you know, from these three sort of customer or, or, or three bases uh, yeah. that we talked about, users, consumers, utilities, um, you know, the automakers and even regulators. I mean, regulators are trying to figure Absolutely. out how to make this happen, like CARB and, and yeah. uh, other states and now the federal government. So what are you hearing from, you know, from customers? Well, I think the good thing is like as a business, the, it, what you hear is what you eat. And so that's that's like one of the best, the purest forms of feedback, right? It's like, we were we were really apprehensive in the early days. We were, we were unsure if the market yeah. was ready. And, you know, there's there's still a lot of regulatory uh, questions and, and, and sort of just like re, reimagination that needs to happen in order to take, especially on the utility side, an industry yeah. that has been very static, very sort of like flatline growth, no no real then dynamic growth happening there, and now have to move into a regulatory motion and hence a, a, a operating motion at a utility level that is much more used to growth and change. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the CEO of PG&E last week said this, is like, we have to move from a keep the lights on and just operate as, as needed to a uh, growth a growth motion. And I think that's that's a that's a huge cultural shift for utilities. Absolutely. I think to your question, like the feedback has been great because I think, you know, again, the the core the core sort of technology and the core innovation of WaveGrid was figuring out how do we optimize, right? How do we understand, predict, and then optimize that charging that's happening mm-hmm. as today it's only about 3 million vehicles, but then right. tomorrow again, we're going to 100x that. How do we do that at scale? And mm-hmm. how do we ensure that we can keep a clean, affordable, and reliable electric grid while doing so? And I think really critically ensuring that it respects the mobility needs first and foremost of a customer, because that is the most critical mm-hmm. thing. Like any customer that buys an EV is not buying it because they wanted a battery. They, they're buying it because they wanted a car or a truck right. or whatever. Right. And then the battery has value on top of that. And, and so respecting sort of the constraints, but also the value that you can create for the customer, the OEM, the utility, I think that's been sort of the, the, 
the sort of secret sauce of, of WaveGrid, which is building technology that allows for those connections to be made and then being able to like create value and split the pie between those different stakeholders as it makes sense in the reg in the in the relevant regulatory structure. Um, it's just a very simple way of saying we make sure that you can optimize all that charging, but 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 at a very simple level rather, but but at the same time, like it is a very complex thing to build technologically right. and partnership wise. Right. So I want to ask you, and and you kind of started to talk about this a little bit, but what kind of trends are you seeing out there, both in California, which as you very well know, has one of the largest or the largest EV adoption rate um, in the country um, and, and in the U.S. generally when it comes to EV grid integration. What are you seeing out there? And, you know, in your view, is the grid really ready to support this massive scale up of EVs, these 280 million vehicles um, that we potentially will be seeing in the in the coming years? Yeah, I mean, I think I think let's if we zoom out to the whole country, right? Like, obviously, at a policy level and at a at a infrastructure level, there's been a ton of conversation about public charging, and I think whether it be the evolution of all the automakers moving towards NACs, the North American Charging Standard that Tesla right. introduced, or you know, increasing amount of public charging investment, I think that's very critical. You need to make sure that customers feel safe and secure for the generally, you know, five to 10% of time that they're going to require fast charging. But the truth is, and I said it in what I said about fast charging, 90% of charging still happens at home. Right. And I think when you kind of split the split the pie between charging infrastructure and grid infrastructure, the truth is like charging infrastructure is the tip of the iceberg that everyone talks about, but the grid infrastructure underlying it is actually the much, much bigger issue. And frankly, a lot less clear how we go develop all of that and, and build it as quickly as needed. And also, I think, you know, there is an opportunity, and this is why we've read exists, to actually reduce that grid infrastructure cost by orders of magnitude. Um, the way I think about the question you asked, though, about is the grid ready, is it, it, it is not that the grid will the grid is not capable of handling. And, and, and maybe maybe we should dissect the word grid here for just mm -hmm. the listeners. Yeah, yeah, please. Because everyone talks about the grid as if like, it's this like one monolithic thing. That, right, like, exactly. You know, <laughs> you know, just, you know, big G grid. Yeah. Um, the truth is the grid is split into several different components. These are, this is a terribly complex machine with markets in some places and and centrally regulated and, and, and vertically integrated utilities in other places. But there's generation, transmission, and distribution, the three components of the electric grid. And I do not think there is zero evidence to suggest that EVs are going to create any problems for the generation and transmission system. Those are the big parts of the grid. You know, you've got your power plants and those high voltage transmission lines going through the country. It's just not going to be challenging. Mm -hmm. I think the challenges lie at that local distribution level, the part yeah. that we generally ignore but actually see more than anything else when we think about the electric grid it's that neighborhood that cul-de-sac transformer the wires that come to your home all of that right and ironically that part of the system is incredibly vulnerable to high powered charging but but vulnerable mostly from a cost perspective because you know utilities are in the job of maintaining reliability and so they will of course like ensure that you know the system is as reliable as possible but but there's an opportunity to actually optimize that charging, and that's really what WaveGrid does, such that it is solving 
for not just the cheapest time that the power is being produced, but also solving for, you know, just fitting in more vehicles within that constraint of your local network. And by doing so, you can actually bring down that cost of the grid infrastructure that would be required to support all those vehicles. And so the simple answer to your question is, yes, the grid can handle it. The more complex answer is the grid can handle it as long as we're willing to bear some cost. And I think there is an opportunity to reduce that cost by four to five X using technologies yeah. like we've grid. Yeah. Um, and so the biggest, I think, proof point though in California, and I think California really is the canary in the coal mine as it goes towards electrification is, mm -hmm. you know, there was a really good study done uh, that was released a few months ago uh, under the auspices of the California Public Utilities Commission, the CPUC. Yeah. yeah. And, and what that study said is like, if you're looking just at distribution grid spending and distribution again is where the biggest cost of electrification is going to show up mm -hmm. across the three investor owned utilities in California, PG&E, um, SCE and SDG&E, we're looking at about $50 billion worth of spending wow. in the next decade mm -hmm. to accommodate all those EVs. And, and, and unfortunately, you know, that's not money that we should be spending because there are alternatives to making sure that that doesn't happen. But those alternatives don't happen by sort of just hoping that customers take the right actions right. because customers don't know what right. the right action is. It is a far more complex problem than just charge your car at 11 p.m. Well, that's not actually, that's not solving the issue. It's actually making the problem worse. And so right. you have to be able to automate that charging and make it into a much more flexible resource. And, and that's really where kind of Weaver comes in. Well, it seems to me also that this, the what you all are developing, I mean, especially with the coming of or eventual coming of vehicle to grid, I mean, what you guys are doing are is is just going to be utterly critical for managing that and making that happen. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so WeaveGrid is actually a uh, is a signatory to the Department of Energy's MOU around bidirectionality and V to X, and it's been a core part of our of our strategy. But but you know, I think it's been very much a let's crawl, walk, run towards uh -huh. that future based mm -hmm. on how we how we see the technology coming about. And 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 you know, the, the broad term in the industry is V to X, vehicle to X, where X is kind of everything. Now the question is, where is the power going when you start dispatching electrons from the battery in the car? And, and how do you do so in a way which, again, really gives the customer comfort that this vehicle is going to still be available for me to drive to the hospital in the middle of the night if I have an emergency or go to work the next morning, yeah. take my kids to school? But I think foundationally, in order to get to a place where you can start using the vehicle as a bi-directional battery, even occasionally, right, yeah. in the very, very, uh, very, you know, sort of stressful moments for the grid or something where, where that extra power could be really helpful, you need to have a layer of trust built with the customer, the driver. Mm -hmm. And I think the first trust layer comes from, again, back to that framework of crawl, walk, run, it comes from being able to manage people's charging and automating it such that they feel good about the fact that, okay, my power company, my automotive company is doing this on my behalf. And yeah. by doing so is still ensuring that I actually can meet my yeah. needs 100%. And yeah. that's sort of the beauty of automation is like, you can really take customers' needs into account and then build your algorithms to kind of uh, support, support those constraints. 
It's the building blocks that then take us to bidirectionality. And I, I really do think the first place we'll see bidirectionality, as we are seeing it already, is really in the sort of use case of vehicle to home. So, you know, in that moment where the power goes out, how do we then allow the vehicle to send power back to your home, to power your fridge, your air conditioner, your whatever in an outage um, instead of having another backup battery? And, and I, I think that's very, very valuable because ultimately reliability is extremely valuable to customers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to the question of vehicle to grid, I think it's going to require really extreme events where customers can be compensated highly yeah. uh, for for basically what a few electrons from their car could give to the grid. And so you're not going to see it for daily dispatch, I think. I think that would be odd to be doing that. I also think we should be very honest about the state of technology in even batteries. Like every automaker has a very different place in their journey with batteries, right? Like some batteries are extremely reliable. Some are a lot less reliable. So so we got to be careful about creating blanket terms about technology. I think it's it's all the technologies on a maturation spectrum. Right, um, right. But yeah, so I think WeaveGrid's really kind of building that foundational layer that that is now enabling a lot of our automotive partners, a lot of our utility partners to ensure that as as they're activating bidirectionality in B2X, um, you know, we have built the requisite data and comms and, and control schema to allow for that to happen in the safest way possible, such that we can create more customer value. And again, back to the sort of three pillars, keep the grid reliable, affordable, and clean. Right. So I want to talk to you about charging as well. You know, what kind of trends you're seeing? We talked about EV, you know, scale up. Now I want to turn to charging and what kind of trends you're seeing with with charging. Um, You know, how do you see the technology evolving over time? And how do you see, what do you, how do you see WeaveGrid's role uh, within that evolution? Yeah, so I think let's start with WeaveGrid's role. We see ourselves as an ecosystem enabler, which is to say that the charging ecosystem is going to have a ton of different players. You're going to have utilities, you're going to have automakers, you're going to have charge point operators, you're going to have, um, you know, obviously uh, the other third-party players, whether it be your Hertz's and DHLs and others. And so there's just going to be a whole ecosystem of anybody working in the transportation or electric industry, right? Again, the coming together of these two industries means that Every player in those two industries is going to have a perspective or a desire to, uh, to 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 play in that space. I think what's really critical, though, is that it's it's hard to build bridges, technological relationship, partnership, and I think data bridges between yeah. these different yeah. these different industries and these different players in the industries. And so it requires somebody who can kind of build for the ecosystem. And that that's sort of where we sit. We, we sit as that, as that shovel layer uh, helping a lot of those players. Um, so as I kind of look towards the broader charging industry, though, you know, I think, again, we're seeing a ton of investment, whether it be through the bipartisan infrastructure law, uh, the IRA, et cetera, going into public charging infrastructure. I think this is one of the challenges, though, is that there's so much of a conversation about public charging that we still forget the fact that, that, you know, I think about 80% of charging still happens at home. I think when you add up multifamily and workplace charging, it's going to create about 90% of total charging demand, even over the next 10 years. And of course, that's going to keep changing and percentages are going to keep changing, but, but you realize very quickly that, um, 
residential really is where the vast majority will be, mm-hmm. um, a residential workplace, mm-hmm. and then some amount of public. Now, the 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 sort of back to that iceberg uh, construct, the charging infrastructure dollars that are flowing in today are, I think, rightfully, you know, there's some there's some good targets around reliability and so forth around the charging infrastructure, but but where are the supply chains to get all the relevant grid infrastructure components, whether it be transformers or conductors or all these other things up and ready for this, that part is still, like, I think there's still a lot of open questions. And then I think just sort of the basics of like processes, right? Like utilities didn't need to interconnect in a sort of steady state. They didn't need to interconnect so many different um, requests in a a steady state. It was like, okay, I got a new, I got a new, commercial building being built. Okay, fine. I'll make sure I get that Walmart set up in the next in the next year. I right. got some time. But but increasingly you've got fleets coming along where somebody can buy an all-electric fleet overnight. And the power requirement could be the equivalent of a huge commercial building yeah. for that same fleet. And yeah. it's just like that's not something that we're used to doing in the utility sector. Cause yeah. you've got to now suddenly be able to figure out how do I get half a megawatt of power to and again, this goes back to the problem on the distribution system. How do I get half a megawatt of power on my local distribution network for a fleet for a delivery company yeah. when they can buy that in six months and I can't build that for another five years? Well, so and then I might need to get it approved by like the the POC, you know, because I need, I need to get it approved by the I need POC. this. And, exactly. and, and then it's like, yeah, you've got this ever lengthening timeline. I, I do think that's one of the most critical issues right now is you know, yeah, there's the technology pieces. You talked about the effect, effectively de-siloing all of these yep. entities that have been running parallel paths for in the auto utility pace 120 years. Um, right. And never the twain shall have met until nope. <laughs> recently. Nope. But I, I think the other bugaboo that's really out there is simply the regulatory processes also have not adapted to the fast pace of change that you know, that utilities and others in the space desperately need to make all of this happen. 100%. We we need to get to a place where I think regulators, you know, utilities generally make uh, rate cases. Rate cases happen for utilities once every three years, generally. And we need to get to a place where like regulators can can ask utilities what they're seeing. And I think continue to do their job, of course, of regulating. But of course, I think just kind of do it at a much faster clip. I mean, I, I just think about it as, you know, we, we've all kind of lived through a very rapidly dynamic environment in our lives, sadly, which was COVID, where yeah. every day the data changed so quickly. And, and that was that exponential growth was something we all experienced, right? We saw mm-hmm. one zip code and then the next zip code and then the next zip code and a hotspot, hotspot, hotspot growing. And I think I think it's very similar. Sorry to use such a morbid analogy, mm-hmm. but like it's such a similar thing with EVs where day by day, you've got these hotspots growing all over the network where people are buying cars or installing chargers. And, you know, instead of having a dynamic approach to allowing that permitting and and building those extra, uh, that extra capacity and so forth, we've got a very static process. And so two years after something has, has, has already occurred, we're saying, well, why is that so different from what you said three years ago? And it's like, well, it's a rapidly changing environment. And then you look forward and again, unless you're forecasting in an exponential way, which is not something that we traditionally do, um, 
again, there's a question of, well, is this prudent or not? And so we just need to shorten the time cycles within which we're asking for data, regulating, mm-hmm. you know, the decisions, and then kind of going back and testing the market again. I'm, I'm a chemical engineer by training. So for me, this is sort of the classic sampling problem, which is mm-hmm. you want to sample faster when things are are changing much more rapidly. You don't need to sample as much when things are static. And I think this is a moment where we all know it's highly dynamic. So let's take advantage of that. Let's create those regulatory sandboxes. Um, And so that's, that's, I'm totally with you. I think, I think this is, this is going to be one of the biggest challenges, which is how do we ensure that we can proactively spend? And I think importantly, proactively manage. I mean, a huge part of what we've created is doing is saying, look, if we believe there's a couple megawatts worth of extra load required in an area, what if we could proactively through smarter management and so forth, yeah. ensure that we're only talking about a few hundred kilowatts of peak yeah. extra load? I mean, that just radically changes the economics yeah. for what yeah. we are trying to deploy. And everyone gets assurance. The utility gets uh, assurance, yeah. assurance and sort of that you know, economies of scale. The auto gets you know, assurance, and they're going to need that because they're going to have to demonstrate compliance in one way, shape, or form, whether it's exactly. ACC2 or, or it's the, the CO2 uh, um, pending rule from EPA or the new CAFE, right. CAFE standards. Um, and then consumers just want to make sure, just as you indicated earlier, that, okay, can I drive my car? You know, right. <laughs> is, it, is the power, you know, am I going to be charged? When can I charge? Is it going to be there? Can I use my car? And to have that sense of security. And I think exactly to have that sense of security and trust and to know that actually I can do all of those things rather than even having to ask those questions. I think one of the one of the things we often talk about internally is that rather than even having to ask those questions, the customer should always trust that their vehicle is available mm-hmm. and it's on, incumbent on us to do the work right. to ensure that that vehicle is ready and available for them to use while balancing the needs of the grid and the automakers and so on and so forth. And so, you know, in that simple example I gave, if like, instead of having to install a few megawatts worth of uh, substation uh, upgrades and only bringing it down by an order of magnitude, I mean, look, there's there's millions of dollars of savings there too that can really flow back to the customer, can flow back to the utility and other customers and can flow back to automakers. And so, you know, I think building those business cases is also so critical because then it should it should really feel like a win-win for everyone. Yeah. So we've been talking a little bit about these these kinds of opportunities and challenges. We've been talking about how you see, you know, the the trends in um, both EV scale up and, and charging. But how do you see the the landscape evolving, let's say over the next 10 years? And then how do you see with weave grid? Um, evolving right along with that? Yeah. I think one of the biggest open questions to me in the landscape right now is who owns public charging? Like that just feels like a really big open question mark. I mean, I know I know you've it had is. some guests uh, from other public charging companies before and the, the economics right now are 
are so unclear in some of the some of the for some of the networks and yet now you've got the automakers investing in their own networks yeah. you've obviously got tesla suddenly having changed the game entirely right. with opening up the supercharger effectively to everyone yeah a few and, retailers and, are like hey wait a minute we want to in on the space fuel retailers wanted to utilities why should utilities to. get to own the the charging and the utilities are right. like wait we might want to own charging we might need to exactly yeah and there's there's some really big open questions there and and, and just be clear like we've doesn't play in that space but like it is something that we think a lot about just from a well who all do we need to interact with to ensure that the customer is getting the best experience and also is right. is getting that end-to-end journey fulfilled properly and, and and i think it's still super unclear where that goes i think hand in glove with that though to your point about cafe standards and 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 uh so forth i'm still unclear you know, they, I, we work a lot with a lot of automakers, and I will say, like, you see the strategies playing out in their product portfolio. You see it playing out in their charging strategies, and and I think it gives me us a very interesting benchmarking uh, insight into like how different automakers are are proceeding. I'll, I'll tell you, like, it, it it it. I'm still very unclear on some of the OEMs and strategies on if they really think that there is a there there are different ways to kind of like game the next 10 to 15 years because it's just not clear what everyone's strategy is. Um, and so, you know, we, we of course respect them all and we want to work closely with all of them, but, but at the same time, you just see these like very different approaches. And so whether some people are fully focused on BEV, some people are fully focused on PHEVs, some people are mm-hmm. focused on both. I mean, all these different strategies leave me just kind of kind of like buying tubs of popcorn and saying, okay, I want to see what's going to happen over the next 10 years. Um, And it's, it's, it's cool to be living in that moment as clearly like this massive transformation is happening. So, you know, and you, you mentioned bipartisan um, infrastructure law. We had the inflation reduction act. There's a whole slate of policies in California and the other, um, and many other States uh, at this point. Um, do you see the need for other policies that need to be set, um, either federal, state, local level, to really spark EV scale up? Is enough being done, um, in your view? Um, what are the biggest gaps uh, that you're seeing right now, especially those that would touch on what you all are doing? Yeah, I mean, I think we spoke about it a little bit earlier, and, and I, I would maybe reiterate that point, which is that I think the federal side, there's a lot going on. I think, you know, some states have a ton going on, but but the sort of automotive regulations live in a different part of regulatory silodom from utility regulations. Mm-hmm. And I think how utilities are and their regulators um, cope with this impending demand growth from EVs is going to be really driven by, I think, what license they're given by regulators to, to kind of design the requisite programs and the requisite uh, strategies to handle all of this, right? How much mm-hmm. can they do proactive investments? How much can they go out there and really engage with the customer on charging management programs? I mean, that's that kind of stuff is, it, it just, it, it needs to happen faster because, I do think the firing gun has started on the federal level. I would say beyond the firing gun. I mean, we are well into it at this point, right? Whether it be yeah. huge amounts of money going into battery factories and this and that. I, I will tell you, my my 
my worry, and it's the worry I've had for five years, which is why we started the company, my worry is that the conversation is so dominated by critical minerals and and yeah. the need for labor unions and the need for manufacturing capacity and this and that, that we are forgetting the fact that when we start cranking out 10 million vehicles a year in this country, forget getting to a place of having 280 on the road, mm-hmm. you will find the grid is not ready to handle it and right. that we have not built out the requisite grid infrastructure and of course, the corresponding charging infrastructure to support it, but really importantly, the grid infrastructure. And I think that is going to be a huge failure moment where we forgot that supply chain, you know, finding yeah. finding bottlenecks in supply chains isn't just looking upstream. It also means looking downstream. Right. And the grid, in my view, is one of the biggest downstream risks to large scale electrification. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yikes. Ouch. <laughs> no, I'm optimistic. Scary. I'm obviously optimistic because I'm, I'm building a wonderful company around it. So I think there's a ton we can do to make that make that happen. I wonder if that realization, I, I mean, I hope it comes sooner or later because in my view, you don't want the public um, and other stakeholders to say, see, this didn't work. We need to do something else. And we've spent billions and billions of dollars tons of people's time, you know, so on and so forth. Um, not, you know, sort of dancing around this, but not quite addressing it. So that's, it's kind of my fear as well, to be honest with you. Yeah. And I think, you know, if, if the, uh, I, I was actually reflecting on this a little bit. It, it's like, if, if the question was just the difference between cost, more cost, much more cost, and time was exactly the same, I think, we wouldn't know what the right answer is. In some sense, we would just yeah. kind of say, okay, well, you know what? Maybe we, maybe the treasury can't afford to spend more dollars. You know, it's it like, right. you know, you, cost optimization alone is an exciting value proposition, but it isn't enough. I think time optimization and given the goals we have in ourselves to decarbonize the economy, I think that's the bigger question mark for me. And I think that's where I think about grid congestion as a real, as a real uh, big question mark, because Look, again, back to the the anecdote we were talking about, if we're talking about needing five years to set up the requisite sort of infrastructure, the substation that will support mm-hmm. a fleet depot, mm-hmm. well, I mean, five years, like, oh, that's just too long, right? right? And, exactly. So, exactly. and so I get it. I have a ton of empathy, to be clear, for the folks trying to do that work. I mean, that's why I, I sell and I partner with them so closely. But it's, it is, this is the tragedy is like, if it was just, oh, I can snap my finger, I spend 20% more, and it's still going to get done overnight, eh, maybe not as much of a big deal. But right. it's like five years plus, also, it's going to cost me 20 to 30% more. That's Ouch. a huge big problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, on a lighter note, funner note, last yeah. question, what excites you most about the space and why? You've talked about your enthusiasm and commitment to decarbonization. But what keeps you going? I mean, you've just started this company. It's only a few years old. Um, you know, the startup area, you know, I'm sure has its, you know, both opportunities and challenges. Um, you know, you're creating something with your partners um, and colleagues. So what keeps you going? What excites you most? Oh, I just love how dynamic the space is right now, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's, Every day you come to work and you realize, oh God, there's something completely new and different happening in a, in a part of this. And it, it it's so fascinating to be in the crossroads in a moment where you've got these 220-year-old 
like just lines of industry, right? These two really massive, uh, massive sectors going through massive transformation in front of your eyes. Yeah. And you're living it. You're living it. You're helping it make it happen. And every day there's new questions and conversations happening and it's just so dynamic and and nothing feels like it's gonna, it, like it's all settled. Like none right. of the answers are settled. And so I love creating in that space. I love like playing in that space. It, it's 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 great. And so, you know, I remember of course, Clayton Christensen's Innovator's Dilemma, right? And like, there's so many times when I feel like, I'm like, instead of reading that book, I'm living that book when I see it in front of my eyes. And I'm just right. like, this is, this is the best thing ever. Yeah. Apoor, thank you so much for joining the show, talking to us about what WeaveGrid is doing and sharing your views. I'd love to have you back as the company continues to progress. My pleasure. And I'd love to be back. Thanks so much, Tammy. <laughs> thank you. You've been listening to Fueling the Future of Transport. This show is hosted and edited by Tammy Klein, produced by Carolyn Schneer, and engineered by Alexander Nikolic. To hear more great episodes of this show, learn more, and sign up for a free bi-weekly newsletter, visit transportenergystrategies.com.